Hi everyone, I'm Kara Scott and welcome to this episode of The Heart of Poker, sponsored by 8 at 8 Poker. It's a podcast that aims to introduce all of us to the players we think we know well, but in a totally new way. We're not talking strategy here. Instead, let's participate in a little experiment. 25 years ago, some psychologists came up with 36 questions for total strangers to sit and ask each other. The idea was to see if they could get them to fall in love by shortcutting intimacy. And now we don't have three hours, so I've shortened the list and I've updated some of them as well. So let's find out if we can get to know and fall in love with my next guest in these 45 minutes. Now, I'm really excited that Victoria Corn Mitchell found the time to record with me today. She is a record breaker in poker. She was the first woman to win a European Poker Tour main event. That was EPT London, but that was not nearly enough for her. So she then went and became the first player ever to win two EPTs when she took down EPT San Remo as well a few years after that. Inducted into the Women in Poker Hall of Fame, a well-known face in the London cash game circles and the European tournament circuit as well. You'd say that's kind of enough to keep anyone busy, but see, that's poker's Vicky Corrin. Victoria Corrin Mitchell is an extremely accomplished writer and presenter outside of poker. She's the host of BBC's Only Connect and a regular and sought-after columnist for publications. So yeah, I'm grateful she found time to talk to me. And it's been a few years since we sat down to have a chat. So welcome, Vicky. Thank you for coming on. Not at all. My pleasure. And I'm, I'm looking forward to just you and me falling in love over the series of questions. <laughs> Uh, I've been very interested to see how that's going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, here you go. We're going to give it a go anyways. We only have about 45 minutes, so we might fall in deep like, I already adore you. You know that. So I fell in love with you years ago. I'm much more worried you're going to find out I'm a serial killer. <laughs> well, I'll just, you know, I don't even know if that'd matter. I don't know. It would depend. It would really depend. I've got standards here. Um, so given that it's 2020 and the entire world is a little bit broken, I've been starting each episode by checking in with my guests to see how they coped with, you know, the quarantine, how their life is now with all the different virus restrictions that they're facing. You know, I think you're in London, right? What's it like there? It's fine. It's not. There was a phase in the spring when it was really sort of wonderful. I mean, it was quiet, the traffic <laughs> stopped, the, you could hear the birds and the air was beautiful. And um, it was sinister, but in a way I rather liked. You know, it, it, For me, there's lots of huge positives. Like many people in poker, I'm kind of massively antisocial. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and also, um, I don't mind a crisis. I, mm -hmm. um, I fear things going wrong I, I can get all freaked out about things that might happen you know the uh -huh. might crash or whatever it might be when there's an actual crisis I'm quite good at thinking oh well you know you, you've got to cope haven't you let's just eat more see mm -hmm. the answer yeah it's funny I actually was talking to um, some of my family right at the beginning of this whole thing we were laughing because you know we grew up um, in the middle of nowhere in northern Alberta very much self-sufficient, you know, gardens, a cow, some chickens. Um, you know, we didn't really have running water. <laughs> we, we, you know, it, it was very basic. And we always kind of had this sort of apocalyptic view. And so when this all happened, we were just like, yeah, yeah, it's not that big a deal. Like, we know what to do. We're fine. We can bake the bread. We did this. I mean, this is, you know, this is fine. It's easier to deal with something that's happening right now than to worry about a terrible future that might happen so yeah and also I had a, almost a surge of euphoria because I I mean this is a bit of a gloomy topic and we shouldn't dwell on it but my major concern was about well it's about about climate change so I was already mm. in terror I mean even before all this 
the year started with, it seemed like the whole of Australia was on fire. That was kind of terrible. So I actually had a burst of euphoria thinking this could be the answer. This could be our salvation. This is the warning shot to this. I mean, terrible for millions of us, but not an absolute existential crisis. This is the opportunity to avert the existential crisis of, of, of climate change. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that's going. I mean, I think we have the opportunity to prove that we can go. We don't have to uh, right. use planes. We don't have to eat mango in January wherever we are in the world. You know, mm-hmm. you a bit more local, seasonal. I think we learned that we could. Whether we're going to yeah. it, I'm a little sceptical now. Yeah, I'm pretty sceptical. I'll be honest. I think everybody was really happy to go back to as much normal as possible as quickly as possible and I think that there were uh, actually quite a few lessons that we could have learned through it and at way too high a cost as you said I mean it's an absolutely horrific crisis and a continuing crisis for a lot of the world um, a lot of the world so we should have learned these lessons because they were hard fought and hard won and I just I can't see us learning them I just can't I don't think governments are learning them and I'm not sure people are either but you're right. It's kind of gloomy. So um, <laughs> I'm going to start with the official questions from the study. This is kind of the getting to know you phase. So they're pretty simple. They don't get they don't get too pointed uh, at first. So the first one is, when did you last sing to yourself or to someone else? Interesting. Mm. So I have a five-year-old daughter. And I, every time we're hearing music, whether we're driving in the car or I've put on a CD at home, I join in and she tells me to stop. Oh. <laughs> and she and she's made herself so clear. She has made it so clear that she doesn't want me joining in with the song. And what happens is, I start, because it's instinct, isn't it? You hear music. So I start to join in and she just goes, mommy. Or she gives wow. me a look. And we both know that means don't join in. So I, I mean, I think the last time was probably yesterday. A whole song, I would say, coming up for three and a half years. But <laughs> that's a daily experience. I stop yeah. and she stops me. Mm-hmm. It's funny because kids definitely do that. I mean, my child loved it when I sang to her when she was little. Now she's two. She's not even two and a half yet. And today I was trying to sing something when she was going to have a nap. And she just said, that's not a great song, is it, Mama? And I was like, really? <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. Much appreciated. Um, oh, I like this this question for you, actually. What's the strangest job you've ever held? Uh, well, do you know, as I explained to somebody at the school gate, my daughter started school this week uh, for the first time ever, and I was explaining to someone at the school gate, every decision I have ever made, personally, professionally, or romantically, in my entire life, has been geared around not having to get up early in the morning. <laughs> Every single decision from, you know, jobs I've taken, husbands I've chosen, just one mm-hmm. moment, but we'll see how it goes. It's all about not having to be up early. So I have really vehemently avoided anything kind of resembling a proper job. I've done a series of weird things to write about. I once spent a short period of time as a zookeeper. Huh. Uh, but mainly to write about the experience. I don't think I was ever going to be a zookeeper long term. But that 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 uh, I don't know. Tell you one thing about that uh, experience is uh, I had to have my picture taken because I was going to write about what it was like being a zookeeper. I had to have my picture taken with the elephants 
Uh, that's the shot, isn't it? Elephant. Everyone gets that as a zoo animal. So I um I went, and this was quite a long time ago. I mean, it was you know, probably ten years ago. I was pretty terrified to do that. Uh, you know, they were, they, and, but I said I don't really want to go and stand in there with them. But they said that's the shot of you, and you're brooming up the manure, and the elephant's there, and the dog <laughs> screams zookeeper. And the the keeper said you needn't be frightened of these elephants. These elephants were bred in camp. Activity. Mm. They are around children the whole time. The Queen has had her photograph taken with these elephants. Don't worry about it. So I did the picture, and about six months later, they trampled him to death. <gasps> I realised about halfway through the story, it, it wasn't wow. very jolly for a, for a podcast today, but here was mind off the coronavirus. But uh, I suppose for for animal activists and vegans listening, will go, well, this is what happens when you when you <laughs> elephants in a zoo. This is what happens. So that. You know, and this was a person who absolutely assured me that they, they were. <laughs> I think it's it, long term, it was not for me. I'll tell you one more thing about being a zookeeper. One of my jobs was to make the anteaters breakfast. What do you think that was? What, ants, I would have thought. No, porridge. No. Yeah. Did it at least have ants in it, like no. raisins? No, it literally <laughs> didn't. It was porridge with some vegetables and honey. Huh. That was probably. That was the strangest, the strangest. But I survived it. That's the main thing. Unlike, yeah. unlike the professional keeper. So what does that tell us? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, they should have retired definitely a lot earlier than that. It's funny because I thought you were going to say, because uh, another article that you wrote, you're, you were writing about porn. <laughs> and you actually, you know, were involved in making a porn film. And I see that's what I thought you would say. No, I've done many strange Making a porn film was only one of the things I've done. Let me clarify for anybody listening. Oh, yeah, of course. Behind the camera, I was surrender. I don't appear in the film to the relief of many. I do. <laughs> Although, if you pay very close attention during the scene between the priest and the character known as Girl Twin, you <laughs> will hear the sound of me opening a can of Pepsi in the background, huh. which is also the answer to the question, was it an erotic experience? You know, were mm. it, was it an erotic experience to make a porn film? I would say, if you listen very carefully to the scene involving the priest and the girl twin, you will hear the sound of me opening a can of pepper. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is the answer to that question. But Yeah, well, making television, I mean, we both know it, it's not, certainly not erotic, um, but and often it can be, you know, very long hours and you have to get things right. And I imagine any kind of film would be the same sort of thing, especially if you care about the cinematic quality of it, which I'm guessing you did. Yes. I mean, you might not think that if you'd seen the movie, but we did <laughs> do our best. And, and also, I mean, it was a huge sort of experiment in all sorts of ways. And mm. one of them was, it, it, was very, it was very important that everybody involved is very happy. It was. I mean, we wrote a whole book about it. So, uh, mm -hmm. so you know, it's, it, you can imagine there's. Um, it's quite a funny book, but there's quite a lot of intricate detail. But the bigger picture is for it to be a very happy kind of hippie-ish collective experience. To which end, mm. all the scenes really people were with their own long-term partners. Huh. Um, I mean, not to cast any, but I mean, let's not discuss our own marriages, but but let's just say <laughs> the kind of scene you get when somebody is with their own long-term <laughs> partner. I mean, <laughs> the scene between the castle henchmen, the two castle henchmen, and they were two lovely men, you know, they uh, very much in love, I think, as a couple, they were very happy, they've been together many years, but... 
when you put the camera on the two of them for a sex scene, it would put that down. What do you think that? Do you think people want to see that face? Just do it. You always say, take off that harness. You look ridiculous in that harness. <laughs> very much, I mean, whether that's it for some people, that's erotic. Uh, for others, well, it's yeah. relatable. Really relatable. <laughs> relatable. <laughs> if what you want out of your pornography is that it's relatable, <laughs> then we the film is for you. You nailed it. In fact, I mean, a terrible joke. Ironically enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, next question then. Actually, kind of moving along with that one. What would the person who knows you best, which I'm going to guess is your husband, say is your most annoying habit? Oh, well, I took care to marry the sort of person who would reply, she doesn't have any annoying habits. Brilliant. Um. In all seriousness, I think we're coming up to the 10th anniversary of our sort of getting together. Not mm-hmm. of our first date, actually, because we had our first date about two or three years before we actually became a couple. Mm. But genuinely, even after 10 years, I would say my husband, he, he, he doesn't think I'm annoying. It's really oh. But it's really like things where I go, that's just so... What would he... Huh. He, he, I, the stuff he, I mean, God knows what in his head he thinks is terrible about me. Out loud, <laughs> the things he, he doesn't like it that I treat the weather forecast as his personal opinion. That really bugs him. So I say, Do you think it's going to be hot today? Mm-hmm. He makes a big, I don't, I don't think anything. And he gets out his phone, he looks up the weather forecast, and he tells me it's predicted to be whatever, 20. <laughs> and then I don't take a jumper with me, and I blame him. And I go, you said it was going to be hot today. And then he says, no, that was the weather. So he finds, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, t- <laughs> That's quite sweet. I have to say, that is incredibly sweet. If that is like the one thing that you can sort of think of that he would think would be annoying with you. Well, what would he say is one of your best qualities? And that's probably an easier question. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. I'm quite good at, uh, I'm quite organizing. See, this is, this is the thing. This would be my advice to people about marriage. The person you want to marry is the one who thinks that your most annoying qualities are pluses. So Mm -hmm. if you asked other people what's annoying about me, many people might say, I'm a bit micromanagey. I'm a bit bossy. I'm over-organized. I overthink things. I plan too much. I certainly find that extremely aggravating. But David is quite grateful for that kind of thing. So I hmm. will have planned, ahead, you know, we do whatever. There's food for the weekend. Uh, you know, our, our life is reasonably well planned. I kind of... Mm-hmm. Also, I'm quite good at being bad cop, like publicly. Huh. Whether that's you know, because he's a comedian, whether that's people that have recognized him and want to come and say hello, or, you know, just in a normal run of things, like, for example, somebody told us today, we ordered um, a, a, a child's bed for my daughter, and it was on 10 to 12 weeks, the delivery time, and it was due this week, and they just called and went, yeah, actually, turned out it never left Malaysia on the ship for another 10 to 12 weeks, and so you're like, oh, oh. and you've only just found that out today. So whatever the situation, if somebody needs to kind of you know I tend to do that I don't mind he will always be a me where that's absolutely fine that's no but he's really nice about everything hmm. and, uh, I volunteer to be the person that says um uh give me that money back you you whatever <laughs> or so you know what I mean I, I think he, he I 
I try to, uh, yeah. Hmm. Oh, I see what you mean about these questions. I know they, and they get more personal. So yeah, we'll move on. Cause honestly, they, they do get a bit more difficult to answer. Okay. I'm looking forward to have you ever killed a man. Oh yeah. Well, that doesn't come till right at the end when you're very comfortable. Okay. Um, so <laughs> are you the kind of person that people come to for advice and do you think you're good at giving it? Uh, yes and no. I'm very bad at sort of professional advice. Uh-huh. Quite good at life advice. So people that I don't know will come to me for advice like how do you win at poker or how do you get a book published or how do you um, get to be on television. And I'm very bad at advising. that People always think there's some secret you can tell them, but I've just kind of chanced and fluked my way into everything. I just go, I don't know, I kind of followed a weird path. I can tell you what I did, but I have mm. no advice. Um, I am quite good at life advice. So my mm-hmm. friends will say, you know, whatever, what shall I do about this, you know, this boyfriend problem or that kind of problem with my mom or something like that. I'm, I'm all right at that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's funny because more than 10 years ago, you and I were in France somewhere playing poker um, and we were both in the lobby bar having a cup of tea. And I was trying to tell you how my online dating life was just abysmal. It was the absolute worst. And you said, pull up your profile. And I did. And you looked at it and you completely rewrote it. And you told me that I had put um, something like, you know, I have an unconventional lifestyle, meaning I travel a lot for poker. I'm not exactly normal. And you said, everyone thinks you're a swinger. You realize that. And I was like, it explains so much about this terrible time I've had trying to date in California with my unconventional lifestyle. So, yeah, you know, I thought you were really good at life advice. It turned around completely after that you rewrote the whole thing for me I don't even know if you remember that but I don't remember that exact exchange but as you said and I've written I have an unconventional life I thought that sounds like you're a swinger (laughs) I agree with myself Uh (laughs) yeah it turned out to be true so I mean everybody thought so um yeah okay now a tougher question uh if you could change anything about the way that you were raised what would it be Oh, well, uh, let me answer that in two. I have two answers to that question. Hmm. Here's the first one. I once uh, did a show a bit called Richard Herring's Podcast. I don't even know mm-hmm. Richard Herring is a comedian. He does this great uh, interview show, and, you know, it's really good. It's like a two-hour long-form interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and he asked me something about – what was the, I can't remember what we were talking about, but he said to me at one point, and this is in front of a live audience in the Soho Theatre, as well as the broadcast audience on the podcast. He said, you're, you're something like, you're so lucky, nothing bad has ever happened to you. And hmm. if I could go back in time, I would say to him, just because I don't talk about things having happened to me, it doesn't mean nothing bad has ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. A nuanced point that I wasn't articulate enough to make at the time. So that's my first answer. Mm-hmm. And my second answer is, uh, I wish I'd had more friends outside school. Hmm. So, you know, there are a few things I might, you know, privately I might change that it's, I wouldn't, but I, with my daughter already, she's only five, but I'm really making an effort to hang out with the kids of friends of mine who don't go to her school 
and the more I think about it, the more I think um, having a sort of broad, and that's been true my whole life, whether it's um, trying to make money from writing and performing and playing poker Mm. or uh, having a bunch of friends in completely different worlds. Mm -hmm. For me, the secret to contentment is having a range of things. So you don't have all your eggs in one basket. And I remember about school, there's nothing quite as lonely as when you feel like it's not going well with your friends at school and, and you've got nowhere to turn. So I wish, um, oh, I'm going to close my email inbox because that was that noise coming in. But uh, that is a thing that I would like to change. That I, I wish hmm. I'd been brought up to, we didn't really see friends on weekends or after school. It was only at school. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a shame. Okay. Um, last question for the first set here. If you could wake up tomorrow having gained any quality or ability, what would it be? Oh, there's so much. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. so much. Um, it, it's, it's seriously, if I had a, a one, well, if this isn't too big an answer, I wish I was a nicer person. Oh, um, really? Why would you say that? I don't know. I just feel like I'm not a very nice person. Well, if it had to be more specific, um, I think I'd like to be calmer. Ah, okay. Um, but also I'd like to be taller. I, you know, I'd like to be <laughs> you know I'd love to be able to play the piano. Mm. One of those people, oh, there's a piano. I'll just sit down and just, so all of that. But, it, but yeah. if, if I only got one go, mm-hmm. I'd like to be calmer and nicer. Yeah, I can see that for sure. I can see calmer. Absolutely. I would, I would like to be calmer myself. I'm starting to feel like the older I get, the less I, well, the more I'm glad that I'm not always nice. I don't know. I think kindness to me is like a key, absolute core value. Kindness is incredibly important. But I think I've spent so much of my life being very nice. And I don't know. I'm just not entirely sure it got me where I wanted to be or was like the best way to impact the world. But but I can absolutely understand why it's something that you would want for sure. In a, I think I'm broadly, you know, one of the good guys, you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think I'm, I'm, I, I do think I'm quite kind. And I do. Yeah, think I would I'm, say you're kind. I'm, well, thank you. I, but, but, but I'm impatient and short. Uh, you know, I think if I met me, I worry I would not like me very much. That's, uh, you know, I know. Well, you're incredibly likable, so Um, (laughs) I don't know if that that helps. Um, All right, the second set of questions here. If a crystal ball could tell you the truth about absolutely anything, it could be about your life, your future, or something that's already happened, what would you want to know? Is there any burning question, some kind of secret that you've never been able to figure out, anything at all? It slightly depends what the answer is Mm, (laughs) yeah if a crystal ball could tell me you know uh you'll definitely make it to the age of 80 then I'd want to know that because it'd be really relaxing what Mm -hmm. if you say that a mystery from the past I'm blessed with having a really terrible memory so (laughs) bearing grudges sometimes I meet people and I think oh I feel like you're someone that's meant to be an enemy, but I can't remember why. I certainly <laughs> Let me tell you a quick a, a, a poker story. I was in a poker game with a guy, um, that I remember this, it was quite some time ago, but he, 
when I arrived at the game, this guy was telling a story about an Omaha hand from 20 years before. And he was talking through this hand. And it was about a guy that he hated. And he talked through the whole hmm. So I had king of clubs, king of spades, jack of hearts, nine of diamonds. I mean, <laughs> he's got this and that. The flop comes, this, this, this. I bet this, he bet this. It's the whole story. right? And at the end, he bets 20 quid. I call, he's only gone and spiked the gut shot. Right? This is the story. But oh. 20 years before, later on in the conversation, he revealed that he's just become a grandfather for the first time. He shows huh. me a picture of the baby. I go, that is lovely. What's her name? And he goes, oh, no. Now, now. He couldn't think of it. He couldn't. No. And he, he carried the bitterness <laughs> of this sort of 28 pounds he lost in a poker hand in <sighs> 71, forever. Yeah. So I don't, I, you see, I've got such a terrible memory. I don't have any kind of mysterious kind mm-hmm. of, you know, th- things. But, but I, I, I'd like to know some certainties for the future so I wouldn't worry about how it's going to be. I, I, mm-hmm. I would ask, for example, is the entire planet going to disappear underwater in the next 400 years? As long as I knew the answer was no. It, but if the answer was yes, I'd run screaming mad. So yeah. a shorter answer is I'll take ignorance. Yeah, I think that's probably the smarter way to go. A lot of people have said that too. There's just so many things that if you can't do anything to change it, especially because one person cannot stop the world being engulfed in water. You just can't. Um, if you couldn't do anything anyways, you would absolutely lose your mind. I think but I would. Now I say that maybe if I, if, but if there was just absolutely one thing, I guess it would be, why couldn't the bed company call me two weeks ago? <laughs> <laughs> Why would they tell me today? They must have. Yeah, yeah. But as I say, I've got a you know, I've got a bad memory. I'm sore about that <laughs> an hour ago. Uh, okay. Um, another question: What do you value most in a friendship? Entirely, that, that a person is trustworthy. It just right. entirely. Mm-hmm. I decided a long time ago. I, Life is much too short for people that are fun, but you don't trust them. And um, you know, not everybody goes that way. I, I, mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm not saying my friends are boring. <laughs> you know, I've had a few friends in my life who are just exciting and fun, but in the end, my grandmother, who was an emigre from Eastern Europe, and you know, whose uh, family had been through sort of ghastly things in, in the Holocaust and so on. She said she always asked herself about her friend, would he hide me? Not literally at that time, but, you know, for the rest of her life wow. afterwards, that's what she, if it came mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. If went to that person, would he hide me? And mm-hmm. I found that incredibly dark at the time, but I know exactly mm-hmm. what she means, and I'm like that now. I, I, the people that I love are the ones that I know, if it came to it, they're there for you. And anything else that might be wrong with them, I don't care at all. That's all I want to be for a friend is someone that would hold them. And that's what I want them to be for me. Right. Yeah, life can be so full. I mean, there are so many people, especially, I mean, in all of the different worlds that you are in, you know, including poker and broadcasting and writing and everything, you must come into contact with an enormous amount of people. So nobody has the energy to just collect acquaintances, I think. So that's a good standard to have. 
How do you feel about your relationship with your mother? <laughs> oh my lord. Um it's a big question, yeah. My mother is a, a very impressive person. She was a very uh, successful doctor, a consultant, and um she's successful in all the ways that I'm not. She's beautiful and um elegant and glamorous and all of these brilliant things and I admire her huge. Obviously, from the sound of that, you can tell we don't have great in common, but she's wonderful. Um, unfortunately, I don't see her as much as I might because she mostly lives in the countryside now. Ah. She's moved out of London and I'm here. And obviously, particularly in the pandemic, you know, we don't we don't mm. see as each other as we might. So from that point of view, it's not a relationship where I say we see each other every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in terms of how we get on, you know, great. Okay, so uh, another question here. What's your biggest fear? Because I know one of your big fears you've talked about and you've written about um, publicly, which was airplanes. Um, would you still say that that's kind of your biggest fear? Yes, and I must say, it's very easy for me to sort of say, I tell you the message of this of this pandemic is that we just have to stop air travel. We just do, <laughs> because I don't enjoy it anyway. I mean, I actually do think that, not just because of the, the fossil fuels and all of that, but I, it's not really supposed to be that a virus can get from Wuhan to Venice in three days. I mean, it's not really... Mm. Normally, you know, it, back in the day, viruses were more containable and that the speed with which people move around the world is very dangerous. For me, I will be mm. kind of delighted if air travel goes out of fashion because what I would like is for it to be possible to travel between countries by ship. And um, nobody's really, I, I did go to America once by ship and it took a week, but they said, you know, we could do it in three days, but we don't because people only ever do this as a kind of cruise ship holiday. So we huh. eke it out. Whereas, you know, we could now uh, do these things much more quickly. So I'd like to see that happen. I, I am terrified of flying. And obviously I haven't been on a plane. Well, not obviously, some people have, but I haven't been on a plane now for over a year. And I don't think it's going to get any easier. Um, but I'm frightened of um, the safety of my family is a big issue for me. And as somebody who just didn't go down that road, I didn't think I was going to be a person who would get married and have children. It wasn't really my thing. You know, I kind of was a bit of a, a, of a, of a lone wolf. Like, I mean, I had boyfriends, but traveling and playing poker and writing. And I, I didn't even meet my husband until I was, I think, 35 and mm. I sort of surprised me so I was quite used to being on my own and quite happy with that and it's when my daughter was born I went even all the time I was pregnant I was sort of thinking well what have I done I have ruined my life I don't like early starts I like to this is all and plus we've got this great marriage and this is gonna really until and I went in the hours after she was born, literally overnight, from a person who didn't want to have children to thinking if anything happened to her, Mm. that would be the end of my life and nothing else would have any meaning or happiness or point ever again. And that was really dizzying. Uh, Probably even more so than people that always wanted to have children. You know, having thought it wasn't really... So I went from someone who just didn't embrace that stuff mm. my husband and daughter are so preposterously important to me I can't relate if David goes out and is five minutes late back 
I, I panic terribly. Oh. So it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, you might. It's so true. <laughs> and I want to say to people, though, in a way, people that, um, you know, never find somebody that they want to marry or never have children and are very sad about it, I sort of want to say, but don't assume it's better. No, yeah, absolutely. Wonderful, but it comes with terror on such a deep level. Mm. I, I that couldn't be without them now, but I, I miss a life when all I had to be frightened of was air travel. Yeah. Yeah. I completely understand what you're saying here. I feel the same way. It's, um, yeah, it's terrifying on a daily basis. There are far too many things that can happen. There's far too much that can go wrong. And I just, yeah, I see every piece of it now as, as a mother. It's, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I respect people who do this more times. I, I'm, you know, one and done. I've had one and we're done. And that's it. <laughs> I'm quite fine now. Thank you. Besides, I'm a little on the older side for having another one. I don't think it would work out properly. So um, yeah, I have a friend who has five of her own children and is also looking after another person's child. And she's having to homeschool all of them right now because they're in the States. You well, that's fine. I would happily have six if I could homeschool them forever. Oh, wow. They've never left the house. There's no problem. <laughs> they go to places. How do you know they're okay? They want to climb trees and go up ladders and be at school and go to friends' houses. Oh. And then they get here and then they want to go on buses. And you just, it, it, I just, how do you know if yeah. you, you can't see them that they're okay? Mm-hmm. That is yeah. the problem. I guess that would be the question I would ask the crystal ball. What is the one time I need to say she's not allowed to go out? <laughs> Don't tell me any details. Just tell me the one time. And then that would be fine. I'd be fine with that. Yeah. yeah. I'd be fine of the answer. Yeah. Yeah. There's things we shouldn't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if you are going to become close friends with somebody... Uh, what is one thing that they would need to know about you? Are there any deal breakers that you have for friendship or is there anything that about you that you think that they would need to understand? I don't like to share food. Mm. This is something, you know, <laughs> I worry. There's always got to be enough to eat. It's no good saying come and stay. And then when you get there, they're like, yeah, we just tend to just pick in the evening. We just <laughs> I'm not interested. Or, you know, we don't, we're not really big on breakfast in this house. Oh, boy. Or, you know, we're out doing something and should we go for lunch? I'm not really hungry. That's never going to work. Yeah. It's got to be constant grazing and snack. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that, that somebody would have to know. That alongside, you know, and, and would they hide me? And, you know, as you can hear, right. that gets more and more of a challenge the more I eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, when did you last cry in front of someone or by yourself? I cry incessantly. Really? Yes, incessantly. And um, we are currently working our way through the entire uh, full box set multiple series of 30 Rock for the second time. And I cry in almost every episode and it's not even like modern family where you're supposed to cry in every episode a lot of the time it's just stupid but I just cry anyway because there'll be some bit where somebody is nice to somebody almost, almost all television oh I tell you what as well um this first day my daughter started school and oh of course we dropped them off and 
I would say every other parent, every other parent was just going, oh, this is amazing. I've got my life back. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm going to have a moment. So they were all so happy. And I'm just crying behind Aww. the tree. But I'm fine. This is not, I don't mean, I don't think I'm suffering from any kind of depression. It's just, just emotion. Emotion's normal. We just don't really show it very well, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm becoming increasingly emotional. Yeah, motherhood does that. It did that to me anyways. I'm rather cold in, in many ways. And uh, I quite like it being that way as well. It's comfortable. <laughs> Nothing bothers you. But then you go and have a kid and everything gets mushy and soft. And yeah, it's just, it's like an enormous ball of emotion. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, okay. One, a couple more questions. We have time for maybe two more. What, let's see. Um, what if anything is too serious to be joked about? Nothing. And that is a matter of fundamental principle. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and more and more and more in this world of, of uh, you know, oppositional, angry rage, I think nothing. And it's particularly, you notice people get, people get angry about jokes according to their personal position. I was, I think, it, 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 not just that people think there's stuff you can't joke about, but that you you can't even have levity near something dark. And I say this as somebody, um, uh, my great uncle died in a concentration camp. Mm. He fell off a watchtower. Um, he didn't, you see, he didn't, but he did die in a concentration camp. Now, I've talked about this on the radio. I have made this joke, and I said, now, he did die in a concentration camp. Does that mean I'm allowed to make the joke? Some people would say, yes, I think that you've got to be able to joke about mm. anything, and if you don't, it's over. And increasingly, I say, as a person that uh, goes on comedy shows sometimes, uh, but I'm not a comedian, but you will make one sort of joke, and everybody on the right will say that is typical lefty, mm. you know, woke bullshit mm. and you make a different joke in the same show and everybody on the left will say that is typical right wing you know establishment whatever. Right. And they all want one joke band or another and I would say all jokes are fine to make you I might say that's not funny I might say mm-hmm. that should be edited out of the broadcast show but the instinct to make jokes is huge and what's happening in the world is that people, whether it's on social media or on television or in their daily lives or in the office, whatever, people become frightened to make jokes because they imagine the offence that another person will take. Mm. And no individual joke is ever worth the count. Any individual joke, you could say, listen, I'm just not going to make that joke. I just can't be, I can imagine what people will say, I'm not going to make that joke. Um, and that's fine, but the result is, if all jokes just don't get made, We've lost something terrible. Mm. I mean, and I, and I, I, I just, I, I feel that so strongly that you, something terrible is happening where people are not so much with opinions. So people mm-hmm. aren't coming. They will still express that. Not everybody. Generally, people with us, if they don't have an opinion very strongly, they won't voice it. Cause it's not worth the fight. But you know, they, broadly, they'll still say it. Jokes. People are stopping making them. I worry I'm not being very funny talking about it, but it's the thing I feel almost more strongly than anything else is that you have to push on through because mm-hmm. obviously 
in trying to be funny, you might accidentally say something that you probably, you know, you wish you hadn't. And then somebody else has the right to say, that's an awful joke. Right. And you go, well, I guess I shouldn't have made it. But the way things are going, people are frightened to make jokes at all. They just think it's not worth hmm. it. And that's just awful. And Right. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think that there there was a need for a pendulum swing in the other direction where it can find kind of a better middle now where people were maybe making jokes? Maybe the wrong people were making jokes about the wrong topics. No. The I'm whole idea of power and balance and making jokes that punch down or, or someone no. else making that joke about your uncle. No? No, no I honestly think there's no such thing because I think the, the impulse to make a joke Mm-hmm. in itself a good one that's not what the damage is they aren't the bad people and you find this particularly on social media mm-hmm. people tend to bully the ones that it's easiest to bully the ones that care it's that's not the problem you bring mm-hmm. into the world even if people are making i could then despise them it's always the case you might hear people making sexist jokes racist jokes you know jokes about anything from child molesting to you know a recent voting tragedy terrible things and you might Mm -hmm. think I wouldn't like you very much and I don't find it funny but the people making jokes are not the problem the people that are making the policy violence is the problem for me I mean Mm -hmm. a particular perspective other people might think it's something else but I think Mm -hmm. you know exclusion violence closing your door to people you know hatred obviously in the workplace it would be not promoting people for the wrong reasons Mm -hmm. or personal bigotries making women feel uh uh, frightened for their personal safety you know the things that are bad are not Mm -hmm. the making of jokes and even if an individual joke is terrible the impulse Mm -hmm. to make jokes is more important than the importance of closing them down and the the day i have i'm not saying i don't hear jokes i find offensive jokes that i think that person shouldn't have made that joke or shouldn't have been on television but the day i think i've got time to put my energy into closing down a joke maker is the day we live in a perfect world they go well this is absolutely great everything else seems to be sorted let's concentrate on 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 some jokes that are wrong I'm glad I asked you that question because you have a, a, a perspective on it because you do work in comedy as well as, you know, living with someone who is exceptionally funny for a living. A living. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to get your perspective on that one. Huh. In fact, all of your answers have been really quite fascinating. Oh, well, thank you. I feel like I've gotten to know you in a, in a way that I did not know you before. But it also makes me want to now continue and go and have a glass of wine and then talk about all of the other questions that we didn't get to because, unfortunately, for 45 minutes, we just can't, which is um, quite sad. Now you've said wine. It's time. It's wine time, I think. <laughs> it's definitely that time. Uh, and the next time I see you, hopefully we can actually have one. And if we're ever both at a poker tournament where we don't have to fly, um, yeah, next time in London, who knows? You never know. It could happen again. I mean, the rules in, in London at the moment are no more than six people can gather together for a social mm-hmm. event, but they can for a sporting event. Uh, where, <sighs> where does that leave poker? Uh, yeah, it's the age-old question. Yeah, the, hmm. the, a guy in my poker game would say, "Let's have a mass debate uh, about uh, about where that leaves poker." Oh boy, uh, I do really appreciate you coming on. I know how busy you are, and um, yeah, just on a personal level, it's just really nice to talk to you again. It's been 
way too long. And I do hope we can catch up again at a poker event in the future. And I hope that this wasn't too um, strange and probing. No, although, I mean, it was, it's real, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it is a bit probing, mm. but, uh, you know, but it was lovely to talk to you. Yeah. Well, I hope everyone else uh, enjoyed this as much as I do. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Victoria Corn Mitchell or, you know, that Vicky Corn from the Pokers in a whole new light. And I will see you all here next time on The Heart of Poker. Poker.